I had the words to tell you exactly how I feel, then I could fill a million pages with all you've done for me. And if I traced each memory and the source of all my dreams, cover to
Amen. Whoa, good morning. <laughs> Almost scared myself there. Well, someone, uh, I think Dean mentioned, uh, was I going to be given a double header since I wasn't here last month? And uh, the answer is no, so you can relax. Actually, it was uh, the Lord's timing is kind of always amazing, isn't it, sometimes when things happen? Because uh, on the day that Ado called, um, I was planning to come, but our daughter that day before that had been involved in the motorcycle or motor vehicle accident and had totaled her car and was at Eaton Hospital. And so we, everything worked out well, and it's as though it never happened. And God is kind and, and very good to her, and um, the car you can replace and so forth like that. But... I was in the emergency room when he called, and so it was when he said, you know, we're not going to meet, I, I almost was like, thank you, Lord, and in one sense. On the other hand, though, the message that I had, not to worry, it's the one we're getting today, so um, just postponed a little bit. But really, my message this morning, if you turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, is on the question of who's afraid of Jesus? Mark chapter 5, and, and another way to title this message and you might see this as we go through. It's the lesser of the two titles that I like, but I kind of like the idea as well that there's, this is a story about three folks, three subjects who begged. So this is a little bit of a mystery now. Who's afraid of Jesus? And then if you like a hint is there were also these people, three or these three subjects, they were beggars. Just before we read though, as, a, as an intro, the Disney song asks the question, who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Actually, I went on to iTunes the other uh, day and started to listen to that song. And, you know, it's kind of a complicated song, <laughs> the whole, all the lyrics to it. But, you know, the chorus is, who's afraid of the big bad wolf, the big bad wolf, the big bad wolf? Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? And, and it does something kind of silly like tra-la-la-la-la or something like that. Maybe you'd say today, well, you're not afraid of the big bad wolf. Matter of fact, there's a German proverb that says, fear makes the wolf bigger than he is. But I will ask you this morning, what are you fearful of or what are you afraid of today? In other words, what is it that strikes fear into your heart this very day? Some of you may have the fear of, and I'm not going to, pronounce some of these words correct, but I'm, I'm trying. Homophobia, which is the fear of sermons. You may actually realize that you have that fear. Acrophobia, of course, is the fear of heights. Some of you probably would say, truth be told, I don't want to get above the second floor if I live in a two-story house. I remember when I climbed Half Dome years ago, and I realized at that point when I'm on the cables, I don't know how many of you have been on Half Dome, but you realize at that point either you have it or you don't, and it's too late <laughs> when you're up on those cables and you're up at this kind of an angle, and you just look to either side, and it's just mountain and blue sky, and you feel like this is about as close as it gets to death if, if it's going to happen. Of course, claustroph claustroph claustrophobia, fear of closed places, Arachnophobia, you probably know that one, the fear of spiders. I remember when Cindy and I were first married, I was reading in bed, and she was next to me sleeping, and all of a sudden, she just bolted out of bed. But the weird thing about it was is she just didn't kind of leisurely get out of bed. She just bolted out of bed and was just going like this, like this, all the way out of the bedroom into the kitchen. 
And before I could even react and to say, what, what's wrong, what's wrong, she came back and she said, I dreamt that I was in a spider web. And it made sense because the day before we'd seen Raiders of the Lost Ark and that scene <laughs> where those spiders are on Harrison Ford, if you remember that. And so she came back just half asleep, but it was that whole sense of being in a cobwebs of spiders. Just a couple more, pathophobia, fear of diseases. And I think some of my family has this ergophobia, the fear of work. <laughs> and then one I'm still trying to figure out how to pronounce, and I'd look it up in the dictionary to see it's a real phobia, but it's chatophobia, C-H-A-E-T-O, chatophobia, which is the fear of hairy people. So <laughs> there's about, believe it or not, about 200 of these kind of phobias. And if you were to narrow it down, it's just very bare minimum of what a definition of fear is. It's the fear is, is being insecure or unsettled in any given situation. And Mark 5, which we're going to read verses 1 to 20, records an incident where fear was evident. And the interesting thing is, is where was the fear directed in this situation? It was directed toward Jesus. Some people, some subjects, who were afraid of Jesus. And we're going to look through this in the next few minutes we have together and ask ourselves the question, what were they afraid of? And like all fears that we face, is it a justifiable fear? Is it rational or irrational? And then really as we walk out these doors today, what can we take from this and how can we apply this to our very lives? So starting in Mark chapter 5, it's a well-known passage about a man who was possessed and we'll go with it here and as they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes and when they had come out of the boat immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him and he had his dwelling among the tombs and no one was able to bind him anymore even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broke in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him and constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Lord, or Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And as he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to entreat him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountainside, and they entreated him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And he gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. And those who tended them ran away and reported it to the city and, and out in the country. And the people came to see what it is or what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had gone, or the very man who had been, had the legion, and they became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to entreat him to depart from their region. 
And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went off and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Well, when you come to verse 1, it's interesting when you come to this passage in Mark 5 because prior to that, Jesus has arrived. And if you remember what has occurred in Mark 4, there's been a serious and very significant storm. And Jesus has calmed the waves and the seas, and they have been hushed, the wind, by his very words of saying, be silent. Now he comes to this location, which is a locality midway along the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It would appear that most of the residents who lived here, from what we read in verse 11, were Gentiles. Because the Israel, for the Israelites, the Old Testament law was, you were let alone not only to not eat pork, but you weren't to touch it. So there's some suggestion that this region was among the Gentiles. Verses 2 to 5, he comes out of the boat, and as I said, he had just tamed a wild, raging sea, and now he's encountering another interesting challenge by our standards, to say the least. A wild, raging, possessed man who needs to be tamed. Now, it's interesting, when you go into the Gospels and you read this, you read about this story in Matthew chapter 8. And it's noticed there that there's two demon-possessed men in Matthew 8. When you read it in Luke chapter 8, and of course in Mark chapter 5, there's one man mentioned. And it raises this question, and I think there's a couple of answers to this. Either these are two separate examples. What occurs in, in Matthew chapter 8 with 2 is very similar to what occurs here in Mark or in Luke. Or better yet, what I believe is the example there is that this is an example where the writers in Mark and Luke are zeroing in on one man. But there were two according to Matthew 8. So you study that, you scholars, and decide. But often the scriptures will do that. One writer just is telling one thing that he really saw, which doesn't dismiss the fact that, that there was something else. It's just what one witness is choosing to report, led by the Spirit of God here to do that. Now, what you can read from uh, Mark 5 here and, and what you may know about this subject, and I've been doing some research on it. We've been having a series at uh, our fellowship about this whole subject of uh, demon possession and obsession and demonic activity and, our spir and spiritual warfare and how our battle is not against flesh and blood, and, and all of these things. It's an immense topic, and it's, and it's very significant to, to know and to study and to realize that he who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. But demons are dangerous. What you can see from this story, just this alone, if this was isolated, they're, they're powerful, and they're destructive. And they have had their way with this guy for some time. This guy, for this region, if you lived in this town, he would be public enemy number one. He's a menace. He's the kind of guy, unfortunately, he's bringing your property values down significantly if he is your neighbor and you have to disclose him as someone who is an issue if you're trying to sell. And he wasn't just crazy. It's not that at all. But he was possessed in a big way. 
Matter of fact, in verse 9, if you read that, it says, what is your name? And the, the demon speaking through this man says, legion. And a legion in the Roman army consisted of between 3,000 and 6,000 soldiers. And it's suggested and maybe even speculated that this man may have had that many demons in him. It's possible, between 3,000 and 6,000. And he, he uh, if you like, uh, showed, or if you like, some of the symptoms of demon possession, and these are not always the way they are. I know very little on the subject. It's more of what I've read and studied. But he uh, displayed some of the symptoms. And some of the six classic symptoms he displayed was he had a severe personality change. There was anti-social behavior, to say the least. He also had spiritual insight. Notice his theology is quite right in verse 7. What do I have to do with you, Jesus? And he identifies him, son of the most high God. And he had supernatural strength. There's an example, and you don't need to turn to it. In Acts, where you see this, Acts 19, and it's just for your reference, Acts 19, verse 16, and you see this in a situation where there was a man who was demon-possessed, and it's kind of a mind-blower. It's about how there were these seven sons of this one uh, Skeba, a Jewish priest, and they were doing some stuff they shouldn't have been doing. They were trying to uh, heal people with the wrong motives. And it says, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus. There you go again, theology. And I know about Paul, but he says to these um, counterfeits, he says, but who are you? And it says, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and, and subdued both of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. One guy doing that to seven people. Another example, torment. Animal-like shrieks sounds, animal-sounding, uh, animal-like sounds that you just heard. Not like a dog, but not like a human, probably something in between. And then interestingly enough, you also read examples of there being a tendency towards self-mutilation, self-destruction. This guy, of course, was gashing himself with stones. It's a pretty pathetic situation. Matter of fact, if you were to read this on the internet about this story, somebody was to report just so that we understand the severity of this case and the awesome power of what Jesus is going to display, this is how you might read it on the Internet. I don't say the newspaper anymore because they're becoming a dinosaur, but the Internet would read it this way. Over the years, the local sheriff had organized this or that posse now and again to snag the man. So they threw a net around him upside the head with a blunt instrument so as to finally chain him up for good. On more than one occasion, the local authorities had succeeded too. Legion was caught, bound and chained, but every time the power of the demonic yielded superhuman strength in this man, he burst the links of the chains like they were made of paper, not steel. It got to the point that the volunteers for the next posse were harder and harder to come by. It looked like this was a threat to public safety and just was not going to go away. So people learned to live with a level of fear. Parents knew to tell their children to avoid the cemetery and its surroundings. Concerned parents met their children after school, even as others posted extra supervisors for local playgrounds, just in case Legion decided to take a day trip into town. 
They tried to blot Legion from their minds, but long about the time they had succeeded in not thinking about him for a day or so, the wind would be just right such that you could hear his blood-curdling howls long into the night. The sounds weren't animal exactly, but neither were they human. However you chose to describe these piercing cries, they kept many a person up well into the night, even as parents had to comfort their frightened children who found even their sweeter dreams haunted by fear of legion. I remember one time, uh, about it was last summer in Hayward, and we had a bad night. A lot of a couple of people had been shot, and it was just a lot of stuff happening through the night. And there was this one apartment complex where we were going out for some issues, and we'd been out there two or three times. And at around 5 a.m., I got off at 6, it erupted into an all-out brawl between about six people, men and women. And we sent about three or four units, and then when they got on scene, it got worse, and the, the fighting was going on, and it, they were calling for more help. And we ended up having to send, and it's hard to believe for six people, but we ended up having to send 20 patrol cars to this address. And it was right at the time I was getting off, so I said, can I go? And they said, sure. So I flew into a patrol car, and we went like 100 miles an hour, which is kind of cool, down to the, um, <laughs> to the scene. And, and when I got there, I was standing out, and it was this, this kind of surreal scene, because you hear birds chirping. I mean, it's 6 a.m., there's a couple people standing outside on balconies, out, our neighbors and so forth, and you've got this chaos and this commotion going on in an area just about the size of this room. And it got so to the point that one of the women there had to be what we call wrapped, and she had to be actually um, tied really from toe, from foot to, to, to here and just wrapped. It's almost like in saran wrap because she was absolutely so incredibly violent. And she was so violent then, the other thing that they had to do, and I was about as far as maybe from Dean to where I am right here, and so I was kind of like wanting to back up a little bit more because I hadn't seen this kind of behavior where someone even had to have like a stocking put over their face so they wouldn't bite or spit on those who were around. And it was an uncontrollable shaking, and it was violent. And in a way, when I read this story, it kind of reminds me back to that. This was a violent situation, and one where I guess the neighbors just got used to this kind of problem, and maybe the neighbors here just kind of got used to this situation. But it was a pathetic one. This man was tormented. Now, in our case, people were dialing 911, and that's why we came. But in verse 6 and 7, Jesus arrives on the scene, and there's no 911 call for him, but he knew, he knew what he was going to encounter. He had just dealt with the sea. He's just arriving on the other side of the shore, and here he is. Now, he had caused quite a stir, hadn't he? Because any of your reading of the Gospels, you know that people probably had heard there wasn't Internet, and there wasn't iPhones, and there wasn't text messaging or Twiddle or whatever that is, or Twitter or Twitter. <laughs> I have yet to figure that one out. But there wasn't all these ways of communicating. But nonetheless, word was getting about about Jesus. And they'd heard that, you know what? He's healing people. And not only that, but this guy speaks like nobody else has spoke before. He's got incredible authority. And he's an outstanding teacher at that. And even this wonderful thing, I'm sure they were saying, is, is he's practicing what he preaches as well, unlike the Pharisees and the scribes who were teaching. So when he arrives on the shores here, this is a big story that he's arriving. But then what the Chamber of Commerce didn't want to happen for his arrival happened. This dude... This guy all of a sudden runs out of the cemetery and starts to go for Jesus. And he's screaming at 
the top of his voice. And the first question we have this morning is, number one, who was afraid of Jesus? Was it the demons inside the man? Yes, and with good reason. You read that, don't you, in verse 7. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. The first subjects who knew and who rightly were afraid of Jesus was these demons. Turn back, if you would, just in Mark's Gospel to chapter 1. We see another example of this. Verse 21, Mark 1. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Right theology, again, on how they identified him. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. <laughs> That's kind of funny in itself. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They were afraid of him because they knew that Jesus could torment them. Also, they were afraid because they knew that Jesus came to destroy the very works of the devil. That's an awesome verse in 1 John 3, 8. Look it up sometime. It's a good verse to memorize that it says very clearly. Somebody says, why did Jesus come? And you can give an, an answer that's not in addition to, if you like, but includes why he came. But it says he came to destroy the works of the devil. And aren't you glad about that? That this man, the right man of God's choosing, the Father's choosing, came and was able to do this that no one else could do, our Lord Jesus Christ. Demons knew that the time was coming. Matthew 8, 29, where this story is told in Matthew, they say, have you come here to torment us before the time? Demons had reason to fear because they knew that everlasting fire was prepared for them. And then there's this interesting verse, and this would take a message of itself to go through. But in 2 Peter 2, 4, it says that there are sinful angels that are chained in darkness. And it's probably thought that these were angels who took on the form of humanity back in Genesis, and they intermarried with humans. And it's a really serious, serious sin that was going on. And you'll have to research a bit more about that, but it's in 2 Peter 2. But you can go back to Genesis 6 to read on this. But the verse, Peter says this, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So these demonic angels had good reason to fear. So then the question is for us, should you and I, should we fear Jesus? I was at a class on Wednesday, a class for 10 hours. Believe me, it was a long 10 hours, but a class on 10 hours on harassment and discrimination in the workplace. And we had an attorney who talked with us about this whole subject. 
a binder about that thick for supervisors about the whole issue of discrimination and case studies and stories of people who had been sued and how you want to avoid that in, to happen in your life to where you have to appear before an attorney and you're a lawsuit your way because of discrimination or any kind of uh, slurs or uh, harassment in the workplace. And so a number of these quake cases, when we read them, he answered, is the answer yes or no? And like a good attorney, he said, a lot of times the answer is, it depends. It depends. You need more facts on some of these stories to know how to judge on it. And when I ask you the question, should you fear Jesus today, it depends on whether you are here this morning and you know him as your Lord and Savior, and therefore the answer in the sense of fear, like in this context of it, the answer is no. But if you don't know him, if you're not sure of your relationship with him today, then I suggest the answer should be yes. Second Thessalonians, which is a little book in the New Testament, says that we should fear Jesus if we're not ready for the coming of the Lord. There's this verse that says, dealing out retribution, punishment, to those who do not know God or do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And also the Bible says that we should fear if we're not sure that our names have been written in the book of life. Revelation 20 brings this out. Because the consequences of not having your name written in the book of life are just so significantly huge. Everything else that you think is huge or big in your life now would pale in comparison if your name is not in that book of life, which is recorded in Revelation. And if you're, if you're not sure, man, and I say man in context of men and women, you need to be concerned about that. I mean, there's lots of other things to be concerned about in our lives on this earth, but there's nothing that compares to being concerned about this issue. So then you go to verses 8 and 10. And you see with the authority that only, only Jesus possesses, he commands, as we were reading there, the evil spirits to come out. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. I wonder how he said it. But he said it, as it said in Mark 1, with authority, like no other man spoke. And then it's interesting. The, the demons seem to be almost in a, uh, they're just kind of um, besides themselves. They almost seem like they're a little bit thrown off here. They don't quite know what to do because they kind of say something to basically the effect in verse 7. But hey, before we go, promise us that you won't torture us. I mean, they knew they were defeated, that they had no power over Christ. So they beg not to be sent out of the area, which is interesting. And I throw this out, and you think about this, but it's, it's intriguing to think that demonic spirits and the ones that have been cast out of heaven, do they have areas and territories that they reside in? They, they wanted, it seemed, that they had to stay. It almost seems like they had to stay in this area. So do something with us, but don't destroy us. And I think it's sobering to think that there may be areas, regions, countries, locations, cities where they have been ordered to stay put. Now again, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But let's understand that the enemy that we fight is a fierce enemy. He's not just to be, he's not a ragtag army that he has. And he, he's out to bring destruction. And we see it in the newspaper and we hear about it every day of what he's doing on this earth to cause havoc 
And if he can, even if he can oppress and he can do anything, he can't possess us as his children. But whatever he can do to, to influence through his forces, he's trying. And he never quits. But when it comes to the battles with the devil, as the hymn, famous hymn says, our striving would be losing were not the right man on our side. And I'm so thankful today when I think about this passage and I read what happened to this man and I see all the examples of his power over leprosy, over sickness, over all the diseases that he cured, that we have the right man, God's man, who's here to deal in this passage with this guy and in our lives as well. Aren't you glad about that? Then verses 11 to 13, there's this story about this herd of swine, and I kind of thought that was funny that last month when I was going to be speaking, I was going to be talking about swine and pigs with the issue of the swine flu. And um, H1N1, I think, is what it's called or something similar to that. But it, the demons start to babble on about a herd of pigs. And when you read this in, in Matthew 8 and, and Luke nine, I believe, and here in Mark five, it seems that they feel like it would be better to live in pigs than to be completely and utterly destroyed. And that's where I suggest maybe they felt like if these pigs are in this region, it's better for us to stay in this region, even if we're in swine, than to be destroyed. And so Jesus, interestingly, there's a number of questions in this, and all of our answers don't get answered here on this side of heaven, but Jesus grants a request to enter the pigs. But as someone has said, but in doing so, he ended their destruction in humans. So they went into the pigs, and because of their destructive nature, we know, as we read in the story, what occurred. So then it raises another category. We saw who was afraid of Jesus, and rightly so, the demons. Now we come to this question, well, another group, another set. Matter of fact, when that word beg, they beg to not be destroyed. First beg. Then the second group you have, well, who else was afraid of Jesus? In verses 14 to 17, well, let's just back up. He gave them permission, and coming out in verse 13, the unclean, unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned. And verse 14, and those who tended them ran away and reported it to the city and out of the country and out in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right man, and the very man who had the legion. And they became frightened. Frightened. Who was afraid of Jesus? The citizens of the region. Should they have been? No. Although I had an interesting conversation over at Togo's over an awesome uh, Cobb salad a couple of days ago about this very passage. And he was emphatic that the answer was yes, they had every reason to be. And I understand where he was going with it in the sense that if you put yourself in the shoes of these people, all of a sudden this kind of dramatic thing happens. And humanly speaking, you might say, wow, this is kind of breaking up the routine of the day of what normally happens. And sometimes people are really afraid of that. But it was needless fear in the context that if they had, they had heard what Jesus had been doing, it was only good. It was only good. I remember a friend of mine who became, matter of fact, this very man I was talking to on Thursday became a Christian last May in 08. 
And as people in the radio room were listening to his changed life story, it was one woman, and I was in the room at the time, said it to him. I like the man you were before you became a Christian better because that was a man who was full of vile language and cynicism and gossip, and they were able to kind of have that kind of conversation in the room. And now he had changed. Jesus had changed him. And she said, I actually kind of prefer the old Phil better. And I think in this context, we think of why were they afraid? Some suggestions. They were afraid of his supernatural power. Another phobia, Zeus phobia, which is a little, apparently one that's recorded. It's a fear of God. They had it. They were afraid of the unknown, afraid of change. And maybe some were afraid of the fact that, you know what, he's just allowed uh, demons to go in these 2,000 pigs. Maybe there were more pigs around. And so is this going to happen to my herd? And you know what, that's my, that's my livelihood. That's my income. That's how I'm living. We're going to lose our income. We're going to lose our sense of our security if this Jesus stays on the scene. But fearful, you would think when you read this, wouldn't you, when you think of what they had encountered night after night after night with this guy, that they would be absolutely thrilled by the fact that this guy is clothed. He's no longer naked. He's in his right mind. And yet they wanted Jesus to go. They didn't want to know more. They didn't want to learn more about this Jesus, even understand, how did you do this? You know, how did that happen? How can you do that? What power do you have? Someone has said they carried more for their swine than the Savior, more for their sows than their souls. Really true, isn't it? Well, then you come to the last question of who else was afraid of Jesus? Was it the man who was healed? And the answer is absolutely not. No, he was not. Matter of fact, he's another beggar. You had the people begging Jesus, leave us. Leave us. You had the, the uh, demons saying, begging them, don't torment us. And then in verse 18, you have this man who had been demon-possessed, was begging him, entreating him that he might accompany him. It's a good kind of begging, if there's a good kind of begging. Jesus had other ideas. And interestingly, if you like to read the word and ask questions, which is a good thing, you might say, okay, wait a second, I'm a little confused. There's times when Jesus told people who he had healed, don't tell anybody. In this situation, he said, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. So it's a good question to ask. Why no sometimes? Why yes in this situation? Here's a couple suggestions. You eat the orange, spit out the seed, or come up with another one as well if you like. This demon-possessed man couldn't speak. It wasn't his voice that was coming out of all of that language. Now he can. And Jesus says, let people hear you, your, your speech, coming out of your heart and soul, come out of your mouth. That's one reason, maybe. But also, if he had been in a Gentile region here, and this was not a region that was where the Jews were occupied, he was extending his ministry to the Gentile region. They weren't going to have the large crowds. 
and the Pharisees and the scribes were out to harass and cause issues and problems by those he had healed. So it wasn't going to have the same drama effect of causing a stir. And Jesus didn't want that so often with the situations when he was in Israel. No, he wasn't afraid of Jesus. Or, and here's the thing. He wasn't afraid to tell others about him. And I love this. In Luke's account of it, it says, And he departed, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. He obeyed him. And then it's interesting. The next verse in Luke's account, it says this. The multitude welcomed him when Jesus returned. They'd been waiting for him. Now that some of the multitude, it was a whole different response and reaction to Jesus where some of them or a lot of them were saying, get out of here, leave us. Because of the testimony of this man and his faithfulness, now they're welcoming him and they've been waiting for him to return. A complete change with the crowd. 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so I ask you as we close this morning, how do I get rid of my fear of sharing Jesus Christ? It's one of those phobias. It's not, I didn't see it listed, but it, it's an evangelistic phobia of having to be a witness for Jesus in the sense of with your mouth and with your, and your lips and your life. How do you get past it? How do I stop being afraid? And I think if I was, to, in all honesty, we were to sit down together and talk about this this afternoon, we would admit that this is something that we're afraid of. We are sometimes very afraid to bring up his name in a right and respectful and gentle way. We can talk about this, we can talk about that, and as Toby Keith's song talks about, we can talk about all these things that people talk about. And yet when it comes to talking about Jesus, all of a sudden we're tongue-tied. We don't quite know what to do. New Testament addresses this issue, and how it addresses the issue of fear is addressing the issue of boldness. Acts 4.13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, what does it say? They were astonished, and they recognized this awesome thing, that they had been with Jesus. Folks, if we're with Jesus, when you meet with Jesus, if you know him, people should see there's something different about how you are. Now, I know when I have not been with Jesus, sometimes they, people can tell, go back and spend some time with the Lord. My wife might just say, go back. Just go out the door, come back in again when you've met with God. And there's a difference when you've been in his light. People should see that. And if you were to define boldness, boldness in evangelism is the courage to speak with freedom, plainness, and confidence in the Lord. And I trust, brothers and sisters, as we just pray, as we trust God, that, and we remember this as we're asking him to help us in this area, that if we remember two things, we're on the right track. Remember one, number one, the truth of this message. Only Jesus could do this. The truth of the message that you have if you know him, coupled with a concern for those who don't know him. That's the, that's the potion. That's the antidote to this issue. Going to God with it. Situations in the past, you'll find, guess what? Now, all of a sudden, you have courage and boldness where you didn't. I had the privilege of uh, leading a young man to Christ. I just happened to be the one there for the picking uh, last month. And you know, it's always a wonderful thing to be with a guy 
ex-Marine, 25 years old, came to know Christ wonderfully in May, thought he had known him for a number of years, realized through a number of awesome frappuccinos and stuff at Starbucks that he didn't, trusted Christ. I was meeting with him at a branch here in, at the bank he works at in Danville. And we're doing our, our lesson, our follow-up lesson in the break room. That's where he wanted to meet. We're doing our lesson, a couple people start to come in. You know, it's lunchtime. And I thought, okay, well that ends the study. You know, he's probably not gonna wanna talk anymore. He's saying, no, let's continue. So he's ans answering the questions, talking out loud, and there's a couple people and they come and sit next to us and they're listening to us as we're doing our study on who Jesus is. And one even started to take part for the next half hour. Boldness, boldness. I was thinking, well, let's just wrap this up and put my Bible away and kind of just walk out. And he said, continue. Started reading the word. I thought, that's what it is, isn't it? And that young believer has it. And so should we. And so I ask you the question as I close. Taylor sang the song, and it really is, is fitting. Is Jesus the story of my life? The word, the chorus was, the story of my life is you. This demon-possessed man who was healed, he was telling the story. And look at the consequences and the results. You know Christ today, you've got a story. Are we afraid? Who are we more like in the story? The demons in the man? The citizens of the region? Or the man who was healed? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we have a God who we read about in the Gospels is just filled with power. Lord, you did things that no one else could do. And we thank you for this, even this man that we're going to meet in heaven who experienced your touch and experienced your power in his life to be wonderfully rescued from the snare of these demons. Father, I pray today that you just give us a renewed love for you and a renewed zeal for the wonderful message we wonderfully by grace know and own and possess. And I pray, Father, that even this coming week, you'll give us opportunities to share tell the story with reverence, with respect and gentleness to ever, whoever you bring in our path. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.